Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 12. This is what it says. This is the New Living Translation. It says, a final word. The end of the letter, a final word. This is like a final encouragement. This is the pep talk. This is like, okay, you know, you're getting ready to launch the, the child off to college, and here's the last things you want to say uh, before they leave. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So pretty typical Mother's Day verse here, don't you think? I mean, when he thought about, oh, we're going to go to church and hear a Mother's Day sermon, I bet you he's going to talk about evil spirits, you know, demonic activity. That should be fun. But I suppose if uh, anybody knows about evil spirits and disobedience and all that, it's probably mothers. But, but we are talking about this, and I realize there's a little bit of a disconnect. Uh, but I think if you hold on, you'll see why this is such a valuable um, uh, text and a valuable topic to talk about. Have you ever been in a, uh, you're having a normal conversation with a person, just a normal conversation, and the, the, you've got good rapport, it's been interesting, everything's going well, there's good back and forth, and then at some point in that conversation, the person you're talking to injects something into the conversation that kind of like uh, uh, red flags, stop, I don't know if what to do with this now. They say something wild or weird, they say something like, well, you know that aliens fake the moon landing or something like that and you're just like oh everything was going so good <laughs> until you said that um, it's almost like if you have been eating a delicious meal and you find a hair in that meal and you're like oh what do I do now this was all so good and now I've got what do I do how do I handle this uh, some of you would just eat right around it. I know some of you are gross, but other people are just like, I, I'm done. I'm done. I have, to, I have to exit the situation now. The reason I say that is because this topic that we're talking about today can feel like finding a hair in your meal. Because when we talk about the Spirit, most of us are like, yeah, good theology. I love the Spirit. In fact, one of people's favorite verses is that Ephesians or Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 where it says the fruit of the Spirit and it says nice things. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Well, we all like that. And the fruit of the Spirit is joy. That's good. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness. We all love that stuff. We all love those, those, the fruit of the Spirit and all those good things in life. But then as soon as we read a verse that starts talking about things like evil spirits, mighty powers, dark world, like I don't evil, what is that? I don't know what to do with that. It feels like I was on board with you in this whole conversation until you, you started talking about stuff like that. What do, what do I do with that? It feels like there's like a, you found a hair in your theology a little bit. Like I was on board, but now what do I do with this thing? And it doesn't seem so agreeable anymore. The Bible makes this claim. And so we're going to have to contend with this. But the Bible makes the claim that there are unseen spiritual forces that are working to destroy the well-being and the wholeness that the Holy Spirit is trying to create. Now, if this is your first Sunday with us and you're just like, what did I get myself into? Just hang tight. But I want you to understand that this is something the Bible says is true and is real. 
all that stuff that we love, all the truth that we think Jesus speaks, all those things, this is part of the claim of the Bible as well. And sometimes we like to pick and choose, but this is something, if we're going to take and trust the whole scripture, this is something that we have to deal with and we have to contend with. Because even those of us that deeply love and value scripture sometimes don't know what to do with these kinds of verses. We don't know how to think about, like, what is it, dark world, evil spirits, what do we do? And the reason we don't know what to do with it is because this claim, this, this reality that the Bible seems to address doesn't fit into our everyday experiences for most of us. Maybe for some of you, you think this way, but for most of us, it's not like we walk around the world and every time we hit a red light, we think demons are trying to thwart me. Or every time we're trying to get our kids to soccer practice and they're yelling in the backseat, we're not thinking evil spirits in an unseen world. We're just living our life and we don't know what to do with the these realities that the, Bible's, uh, the Bible is claiming are true. So, so how do we think about it? I mean, everybody, all of us, there's not a single person I know, atheist or otherwise, that can't get behind the concept of love your neighbor. Jesus said that, and we all like that. We all value that. That's all good. But everybody is like, I don't know what to do with this unseen spiritual forces, darkness, evil. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to fit that in between my schedule and doing laundry and work deadlines. How, where does that fit? It doesn't feel like it fits in our world. Now, let me, let's pause for a second because I actually think this idea is more, um, not relevant, what's the word, more accessible uh, and we're more aware of it than we realize. Yeah, we don't talk about this kind of stuff a lot, but we do have an aspect of our culture that seems to have an understanding of things like the occult or, or demonic activity. Now, I, uh, I you know, take this for, for, what, for what it's worth, but uh, my dad was telling me, and, and I, he, this was before he became a Christian. He was an adult man before he became a Christian, and I only say that to say that I'm going to tell you about a movie that I do not recommend anybody watch. I have not seen it. I'm just telling you how it, it impacted my dad, and he watched it before he was like, you know, trying to follow the way of Jesus. And again, if you've seen this movie, I'm not trying to say that you're a horrible human being uh, or anything like that. I'm just saying that, just trying to give you context. But he said he watched this movie, and it was so scary that he slept with, he's an adult man, and he slept with the lights on for a week because it was so scary. Now, it wasn't a movie about aliens. It wasn't a movie about gremlins. Uh, it was a movie that was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and actually was selected, this is true, by the Library of Congress because it was such a contribution to our culture and art that it's in the Library of Congress. Does anybody have any guesses as to what this movie, this scary movie might have been? The Exorcist. You guys knew it's The Exorcist because this movie dealt with these realities that Scripture seems to talk about. In fact, if you read the stories of Jesus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in these stories, and these are things we don't know what to do with, it says that Jesus interacted with these people who were possessed. And we're just, I literally read that and I kind of just want to scoot on by because I don't know how to feel about that. But then they make a movie, scared my dad to death, that he slept with the lights on for a week. And it's part of our culture, part of our, not maybe, maybe we don't believe that's true, but it's part of our way of understanding and thinking. By the way, I did, you know, more research on the movie than I really cared to. The movie was based on a book, which was based on some of the author's experiences that he had heard about when he was younger. So it's not just made up stuff, it's stuff that he had heard about. 
So as a, I, I, I'm a child of the, uh, of the 80s and 90s. I was, a, I was a kid in the 80s and 90s. And people have described our idea of occult and things like that in the 80s and 90s as the satanic panic. Have you ever heard that phrase? Anybody ever heard that phrase? And what it was, so when I was a kid in Bible classes growing up, the, the types of things that some of our teachers would warn us against, especially as a teenager, I don't know if anybody can relate to this, but they would say, what you cannot do, Patrick, is you cannot listen to heavy metal music uh, because if you played it backwards, there's evil messages in the music. Now, I don't know how to play music backwards. Still to this day, I don't know how to do that backwards, but it kind of terrified me because I didn't want to like accidentally listen to something that would open my mind up to something I didn't want to, uh, to, to, to take in. Or the Ouija board, right? You know, I don't know if, if, I've never done that. It terrifies me. I had teachers tell me, oh yeah, I tried it and, you know, we saw some pretty weird things. And so even to this day, it terrifies me, even though you can literally go to like Target and buy, buy one from Hasbro or whoever makes them. Or again, when I was a kid, people thought Dungeons and Dragons, that is a gateway to demonic activity. And so to this day, Dungeons, I've never played, I've never done any of these things. I've never listened to music backwards, never, you know, messed with a Ouija board, never played Dungeons and Dragons. Because those were the things people said to me were the things that were like this gateway or this access to something that you don't want to do. I didn't want to do it. Now, some of those things probably were wrapped up in the church world that I grew up a little bit. But, this, but even in my modern experience, even living in the Twin Cities, which tends to be a pretty progressive place, I was in a coffee shop a few years ago, and there were these two normal-looking people sitting to me. So I'm sitting with my laptop working, got my earbuds in, but the music off so that they don't know I'm eavesdropping. And they're sitting there talking to one another, and they're talking about getting a house ready to sell. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, I just, I like... I'm just interested and in, I'm nosy as it was what my wife says, but I'm just interested in this conversation. So I'm thinking getting a house ready to sell. Okay, well, that must mean you're going to give it a fresh paint job, right? You're going to do update the landscaping. But one person said to another, these are normal looking people. One person in a coffee shop in Minneapolis, one person said to the other, yeah, I hired a, a shaman to cleanse my house of the evil spirits. And I'm like, that is not what I was expecting. And where did you find a shaman? Do you just look through the yellow pages? Do you Google shamans to sell your house? I have no idea how you even go about doing something like that. But that's, that, these, aren't, like, these are just modern American Western people who grew up with our understanding of psychology and science that still, for whatever reason, buy into this hidden, unseen world. Cleanse your house of evil spirits. It's so strange. Such, so weird. Now, all these examples that I'm giving you, all these examples that I'm pointing to you here are, I, I would say, are caricatures of this reality. They're, they're more cartoony versions of what the Bible is getting at. Because Paul the Apostle, Jesus wasn't saying, now don't play Dungeons and Dragons. These are kind of like, they're caricatures. They're, they're, they're a more sensational idea of understanding spiritual evil. And sometimes when we only think of these kinds of things, we, di we miss what the Bible's actually talking about. And I think that's incredibly important. We're going to address in a second. So I think it's a fair question to ask, what are we talking about with this topic? What, what is it that we're getting into? What are we actually thinking about when we talk about this? Um, when my daughter was uh, about seven or eight years old, when my daughter Taya, who's about to graduate, oh my goodness, um, was, was seven or eight years old, she was in like third, fourth grade maybe, so maybe she was a little older, 
she had beat all the other kids in a spelling bee in her grade, and so she won the right to represent her grade at the state spelling bee or district spelling bee or something like that, whatever it was. It was a cool honor, you know, and we, this, you know, we're new parents. We, this is all kind of pretty exciting. And so we go all prepared for the spelling bee. The kids get dressed up. It's this big ordeal. And uh, we go, you know, they march us into this room, and then they give us all the rules for the spelling bee. And you, you would not believe, like, how intense it is. And so there's this lady, and she's got some name, like, Grand Duchess Spellmaster or something like that, where she, like, opens up the official book of the spelling bee guide, and she says, okay, you know, thou shalt not have thy cell phone um, on during the spelling bee. And they, they literally said, you can't even have it on buzz, you can't have it on silent, because it's so quiet in the room that even the buzzing is distracting. So they were like, you, you must turn the cell phone off completely on threat of death. Like, it was that intense. So we're sitting there as parents, you know, turning our cell phones off, and they're talking about, you may exit the room, but if you exit the room, you cannot return into the room, because that would be distracting to the spellers. I mean, if you didn't hear a word correctly, you may request a word to be repeated. Some of you have done spelling bees. You remember some of this stuff, too. It's just, like, so intense. And so we're sitting there as, you know, new parents. We're excited for our daughter. We're hoping that she does well. And uh, they begin... and. They, this is one thing too, I'll just tell you this is a little aside, but they do this thing where they line the kids up all on seats and they sit on their chair until it's their turn to spell. Then they stand up and they spell their word and then they sit back down. If they get it wrong, they are required to move their chair back about two feet just so everybody knows what shame that they have experienced at being bad spellers. And it's just like, whole thing is just intense. And so as a parent, you know, I'm just like wound up for my child. Like, I hope she does well, but I'm just like, ah, you know, like jittery with, with stress and nervousness. So Taya's, they're going through, and I go, they go through a couple rounds, and then uh, Taya, they, they come to her again, and she stands up to spell her word, and the lady says the word, and Taya begins to spell it, and somebody's cell phone goes off. Like, I, I know, I know, it's like, <gasps> exactly, everybody in the room who turned and looked at this, who would dare leave their cell phone on? I mean, that was part of the clear instructions. And, and me as a dad, like, I'm, I don't know, I don't get super, super angry, but I'm like as furious as I ever get because I'm already kind of amped up and I'm, how could you? This is the worst injustice that has ever been perpetuated on anyone ever. And so, like, we're all looking at her, this mom's, of course, nervous, turning her cell phone off, and, you know, the whole room turns back, and then the, the Grand Duchess Spellmaster, whoever lady, gives her the word again, and Taya begins to spell it, and she spells it wrong. She spells it wrong, and so she has to scoot her chair back in this chair of shame, and she has to sit there for the remainder of the spelling bee, and Dad is over in his chair, and he is so mad at that woman whose cell phone went off. Now, this is really crucial. Taya actually spelled the word incorrectly. She spelled it wrong. She messed up. She did not spell the word correctly. But I felt like there was more to it than that. There was a bigger story, a bigger picture. There was an injustice that had taken place, and the situation wasn't completely fair. She had spelled the word wrong, and it was her own responsibility, and she was suffering the consequences of that misspelling, but there was more to the story. Now, as we talk about this, I want you to hold on to Patrick's sense of injustice in that moment. I want you to have that, and I want you to put it in your pocket, because we're going to bring it out later, and we're going to use it and talk about this. 
The claim of Scripture is that there is something bigger going on behind the scenes that we can't really see, that we don't notice, that our senses can't perceive. That is the claim of Scripture. And so whether or not we think that's strange, it is. It is the claim of the Bible. And, and this is important, it's the way Jesus navigated and thought about the world, and it's the way the authors of Scripture and the apostles navigated and thought about the world. So, for example, just in this one letter in Ephesians that we read the end of earlier, if you go back toward the beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. This is Paul just recounting their journey to Christ. And look at the worldview that he uses. He says, you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And then he says, and you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's such a weird idea, but it seems to be, not getting into this too much, but it seems to be Paul talking about the kingdom of the air in terms of, in contrast to the kingdom of heaven. Like the kingdom of the air is just all this that we see and experience and feel here in the world now in contrast to the kingdom of heaven. They weren't following that. And it says, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So do you see Paul's worldview accounts for something bigger than just like we would look at like somebody's sin and we would say, oh, they messed up, that was bad. And Paul's saying, no, 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 there's something bigger going on behind the scenes that we can't always see. Uh, A few chapters later, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 says this, he says, for you were once darkness. That's kind of harsh. He doesn't say you were once in darkness. He says you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. Even Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 53, he talks about when he was arrested. So this story that we're pretty familiar with as Christians, a lot of people are pretty familiar with. He gets arrested um, in the garden. Remember, he's praying and Judas, the kiss, all that. He says, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And Jesus is saying there's something bigger going on behind the scenes, and it's coming out in your opposition to me, but it's, it, it's, it's expressive of a larger reality that we can't see, that we don't understand. Now, I think it's fair for us to say, I mean, we're modern, educated people. Many of you have your, uh, your, your college degree. So, yes, of course, when we talk about sin and evil and bad things in the world, we can point out to neurological, psychological, environmental explanations for that evil in the world. We can point to those things and we can say, well, this is because this person and this, this. We can point out to what's going on. But the reason the Bible says people make these self-destructive choices and do these self-destructive things is because there's something bigger going on in the world. Um, Tim Keller, who wrote about the, the, the question of, like, what do we do with Jesus and, and all the stuff where he talks about Jesus casting out demons, like, what do we do? Because that's not part of our modern reality. Tim Keller wrote, it's not possible to explain all the misery and evil in the world as simply the product of individual sinful choices. He says, evil spirits greatly magnify, aggravate, and complicate the sin in our hearts that we commit toward God, one another, and ourselves. I want you to do this as a thought experiment because especially if you're still kind of on the fence, maybe some of you are like, yeah, I think there's unseen forces of evil, but some of you may be on the fence. And so I want you to do this with me and think about this because I think if we think of the broad categories of sin, Uh, what the Bible calls sin and evil. So if you think of like child abuse, there's nobody who thinks child abuse is a 
thumbs up thing. That's good. There's no, you know, there's no pro-child abuse lobby in Congress, right? Everybody thinks that's an evil, but yet it's an evil that happens constantly in the world. But everybody acknowledges that it's an evil. So things like, things like child abuse, human trafficking, terrorism, abortion, starvation, mass shootings, and like, but seriously, I mean, as a society, we've gotten so numb to the notion of children bringing weapons into school and shooting other children. It's insane that we've gotten used to that idea and when it happens we're like oh that's too bad I hope everybody's okay and hope that works out and then we just move on with our life but it's an evil that exists in our society and so I think even Christians even those of us who are like I'm not even sure how to think about this even people who aren't Christians and are like this is all weird I don't think it's it's too much of a stretch for us to say yeah it does seem like there's something deeper and unseen it does seem like there's an undercurrent of evil going on it's not a stretch and so I think it's important for us to understand that there is an undercurrent of evil in the world in which humans can be complicit we can make choices to participate in those evils or we can fight against them. We can fight against those injustices. We can fight against those realities. And that is essentially what Paul is saying in Colossians or Ephesians chapter 6. There are dark spiritual forces and you want to you armor up. You want to be mighty in power so that you can fight against the devil's schemes. But what scripture is claiming, and this is the pivot that we're going to struggle with here in the room... What scripture is claiming is not only are those evil forces present in those large, you know, cultural nationwide issues, but those evil forces are present in the small sin struggles in our lives. That's the claim of scripture. It's easy to think like, yeah, there's dark spiritual evil when we think, watch a documentary about a serial killer. But what Paul is saying, when you actually read the text around Ephesians, he's not saying, hey, everybody, I want to make sure that you don't listen to records backwards because there's evil messages, or I want to make sure you don't play Dungeons and Dragons. You know, I want to make sure that you don't, you know, use a Ouija board. He's not saying that. He's saying, hey, when you behave from a place of greed and selfishness uh, and self-centeredness, when you behave that way, that is representative of of." being complicit in these evil spiritual forces. He's talking about moral choices, anger, lying, deceit, all those things. It's moral choices. He's talking about patterns of thought that justify us and bring harm and introduce harm to others. That's what he's talking about in the text. He literally says it. He says he's talking about sin, sin in our lives. See, we think of sin and we think like, oof, had a momentary lapse of judgment. Boy, hope I don't do that again. And Paul looks at sin and he says, oh no, you are complicit with evil forces that are trying to bring harm and destruction to the world around you and yourself. That's how Paul views it. Oof, that's big. That's big. We think of sin and, and we think, well, hey, listen, you know, it's my private life as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, as long as I'm not doing anything that, that does, makes somebody else do something they don't want to do, it's my private life. It shouldn't matter to anyone else. It makes me happy, so that's okay. And Paul's saying, no, that's what we call the harm principle of morality. And Paul's saying that harm principle is garbage because you don't actually understand what brings harm to yourself and others. And I do because I am the almighty God and I can tell you what actually brings harm to yourself or others. But when you try to go around and say, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, you have no idea what hurts you. 
And God does. And so God gives us these commandments for us to obey. And then when we don't obey him, he says there's a spirit of disobedience that's trying to wreak havoc in the lives of, of people in the world. When, um, when our family was involved in the foster care system, it's not hard to see this. And I, I, I've mentioned this before, but I want to give you another perspective on this. Because when you, when you interact with these, these small children, um, these toddlers and babies, and, and they're these innocent victims of these, you know, parents who are just like they're abusing them or neglecting them. It's so easy to take those kids and then to be like, look at those parents and say, what's wrong with you? You're terrible. You're an awful person. You know, why would you ever do that? Why would you neglect your children? Why did you even bring children in the world? Why can't you get your act together? Just pick yourself up and get a job and just figure it out. That, it's easy to get angry like that, righteously angry like that. Like, what is wrong with this parent? But then when you're in the foster care system, you actually have to interact with those parents. And you begin to learn their stories. And you begin to learn that they didn't stand a chance that they grew up in systems that were abusive and hurtful, and they grew up with neglect, and nobody gave them any clue about how to be a good parent. They didn't have any idea about how to hold a job. They don't even know what a good work ethic is. I mean, you talk to these parents, and then you realize, oh, these, these parents are victims, too. Well, though, grandparents, they're the worst. What's wrong with it? And then you find out the grandparents had these tragic stories that we don't have any idea. See, what we do is we look at the poor toddlers who are the victims of abuse, and then we think, well, you caused that. And they did. They own the responsibility. Listen, Taya misspelled the word. But there is a bigger story. There is a spirit of evil that wants to bring havoc and destruction and ruin human well-being. That is true, and our goal is not to fight against flesh and blood enemies, but against those evil forces, those th that perpetuate injustice and hurt in people's lives. That's what Paul calls us to. So maybe you're thinking, okay, all right, Patrick, I, I see what you're saying. I get, I get where you're going, but uh, what does this all matter really? I mean, I mean, whether or not I see the world this way, what does it really matter? I mean, shouldn't I just be a good person, pay my taxes, put the shopping cart back in the corral? Like, what does it matter if I have this worldview or not? Because that worldview weirds me out, and I just want to be a good person, and I don't want to mess with all this stuff. It just, I just don't like it. I don't like thinking about it. What does it matter if I think this way? Well, three things, and I want to spend just a little time on the last one, but three things. Number one, this is the way that Jesus understood the world. So if we're interested in being like Jesus and navigating the world the way he did, this is how he understood it. He understood the world in these terms, that there's these hidden unseen forces in which we fight against. And yes, humans are responsible for their own choices, but it is a larger picture than that. Uh, by the way, I was just thinking about this too. If we believe in the Holy Spirit, like we've been talking about for 25 weeks, then, then we do, it's just natural that we would have to contend with the reality of evil spirits like Jesus did. Secondly, with sin, we, we kind of dismiss the idea of sin because it seems like an old-fashioned notion of morality that really doesn't apply to a modern society anymore. But with sin, there's always more at stake than we realize. 
Because we think like, oh, I'll just make a choice and it won't have any impact on me. And if it does, I'll just, you know, deal with it myself and won't, no problem. No, sin, <laughs> sin is always bigger than we realize. It always has a larger impact than we realize. We do not, you cannot contain sin, period. You cannot contain it. There's always more going on than we realize when it comes to what Christians call sin uh, when we talk about these, these moral choices that we make. And then finally, and this is the one I want to spend just a few minutes talking about, uh, no one opposes a threat that they don't acknowledge. No one opposes or fights a threat that they don't acknowledge. If we don't believe this is happening, we don't fight it. We just go about our life, feel like we're a good person because we paid our taxes and, uh, and put the cart back in the corral. We don't fight these systems of injustice and evil in the world of dark spiritual forces. So that's what this passage is all about. So let's rewind and go back to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor. This is a, a favorite passage of, of, uh, of VBS and of kids programs because it just makes sense, you know, put on the armor of God uh, so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. It, it, it's for kids, sure, but it's for us as well. We can't dismiss this as a kid's passage. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So, so this is the reality. Sum up. Spiritual warfare is the battle between what the Holy Spirit is trying to create in us and in the world and what evil spirits are trying to undo and destroy. That's spiritual warfare in a nutshell, okay? But let's break this down a little bit more because when Jesus, you remember the story in the Gospels, Jesus dealt with spiritual warfare. He was actually baptized and then he immediately went into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. And there's this interesting story where he actually interacts with Satan and Satan tries to tempt him and get him to mess up. You know, it's like the Garden of Eden story recreated. Like, Jesus, you're gonna do the right thing or you're gonna, you know, choose your own judgment. And when Jesus interacted with uh, Satan in the wilderness, Satan wasn't like, hey, Jesus, you know, hey, you want to play Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> you want to listen to some records backwards? You know, that wasn't what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do. Satan was trying to undermine Jesus' sense of mission and identity and his trust in God. That's what he was trying to do. That's what was going on. That was the situation. So let's break this down a little bit because when we talk about authorities of the unseen world, mighty powers, dark world, evil spirits, here is what, let, let, let's, I mean, the language of evil spirits weirds us out a little bit, but here's what's actually trying to be accomplished. Here's what evil spirits, here's what dark forces want to accomplish. They want, to, they want you to have attitudes that keep your marriage weak and discourage reconciliation. That's, that's spiritual warfare. That's, that's what these evil forces want. They want you and your spouse to have a bad relationship and eventually they want you to end the relationship because they want to wreak human destruction. Spiritual forces want busyness to prevent you from connecting with your children and having time to pray and connect with your spouse. Spiritual forces want you to have beliefs that sow division and conflict with fellow Christians. They don't want you to have a relationship with other Christians because they want to separate. Sin always wants to separate. Spiritual evil spirits want us to have lies about our identity and our purpose in the world. They want us to be confused about that so that we don't make good choices, that we don't do what God is asking us to do. So, so here's what spiritual warfare actually looks like. 
Spiritual warfare is those moments when we're confronted with a, a right or wrong. So spiritual warfare is when we are thinking of excuses that keep us from admitting guilt and saying our sor- we're sorry and reconciling a relationship. That's spiritual warfare. When we're wrestling with that decision, do I admit I was wrong or do I give into pride and continue to fight and just let this fester? That's spiritual warfare. Uh, spiritual warfare is anytime anytime you compare yourself favorably or unfavorably to another human being. (laughs) Better than them. (laughs) That's spiritual warfare. Or anytime you're like, man, I'll never live up to that. That's spiritual warfare. That's that decision you're making. There's unseen forces that want you to feel like a failure in comparison or success in comparison to other people. Spiritual warfare is thinking that sin won't hurt you and that you can handle it and you don't need to get help and you don't need to confess and you don't need to deal with it and you don't need to dig deep into your heart. Spiritual warfare is nursing the idea of how upset you are at somebody and just looking, just having, uh, trying to look for things that you can be offended by. That's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is listening to the voice that accuses you and says, you're a failure. It's that voice in your head. Maybe some of you have such a good self-esteem or bad ego problem that you don't hear that. But a lot of us hear that voice. It says, you're a failure. You can't do it. Everybody thinks you're a loser. So, I mean, really, why even try? You shouldn't even try. Just give in. Just do, just do it. Don't even try to be better because just, just listen to that voice. That's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is being convinced that you are right and everybody else is wrong. And you don't have anything to learn from anybody. We'd never say it that way, but we think it. But here's what spiritual victory looks like, and this is good. Spiritual victory looks like any time that a marriage was on the brink of divorce and it's restored, that's victory. Any time that their grace or mercy or forgiveness is extended, that's spiritual victory. Any time repentance happens and someone says, I messed up, how do I make it right? That's spiritual victory. Any time there's a hard heart and someone says, I do not want to live this way, I don't want to, I don't want to exist this way, that's spiritual victory. Any time temptation is resisted, that's spiritual victory. Anytime someone confesses sin and their struggle with sin, that's spiritual victory. Anytime anyone breaks that cycle of generational failure, that's spiritual victory. Most of you can point to a parent or a grandparent that came out of something very difficult and they broke a cycle and you have a better life for it. That's spiritual victory. The Apostle uh, John, and I'm going to close with this statement. It's in 1 John 4.4, but the Apostle John said something that I think is powerful. And it's this. Um, And I want you to notice the language of spiritual warfare. By the way, the language of spiritual warfare is all over the place in Scripture. But this is what he says, 1 John 4.4. He says, if someone claims to be a prophet. So this is the problem. You know, people uh, in these churches were walking around saying, hey, I've got the truth. Listen to me. Listen to me. And John was saying, hey, you've got to vet these guys because there are people who are trying to wreak havoc in your churches. If anyone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus... In other words, that Jesus actually came to earth, that he actually lived, that he actually taught, that he actually interacted with humans, that he actually died, that he actually rose again. If they don't acknowledge that truth, that person is not from God. Such a person, listen to this, such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist. They are in opposition to Christ. Oh, Antichrist, there we go again, that's that weird language. He says, which you've heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here, but you, you belong to God, my dear children. You, listen, you have already won a victory over those people because, listen, this is such a good verse, the spirit that is in you, the spirit that is in you 
is greater than any spirit that is in the world, is greater than those unseen powers. The spirit that exists and empowers and is present in you is greater than those spirits, and you can have victory. You can say no to sin. You can reconcile with a a, a difficult relationship. You can do that because the spirit that is in you, that is good news. And, and that's actually one of the reasons we gather together as a church, to remind ourselves of what's actually true and not let those voices in our heads mess us up. And so we actually, as a church, come together every week to take communion so that we can be reminded of spiritual victory, so that we know this is what's real and those other things are not. And so we have saved communion for the end, and we're actually going to invite Jacob Maynard to come up, and he's going to share a few thoughts as we, as, we, as we try to understand what spiritual victory is really about. But he's going to share a few thoughts, and he's going to pray, and we invite you to take communion together. And then following that, we're going to sing. But here's what I want you to do uh, in this whole process. I want you to walk out of here feeling like I am on the winning side over whatever it is, whatever struggle, whatever difficulty, whatever darkness, that I am on the winning side because of Jesus. Jacob, would you come up?